That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Royal biographies are dropping thick and fast. And King Charles is leaving Archie and Lilibet hanging over their prince and princess titles. And the palace is at loggerheads with networks over the Queen's funeral. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello to the publicists of the latest round of Royal Biographies. That's right. There are three new books out, though today we will be focusing on the biggest two, Valentine Lowe's Courtiers and Katie Nichols' The New Royals. Let's start with Val's book, which courtiers the hidden power behind the crown. Ahead of its publication next month, um, Lowe has offered up a series of extracts to the Times, which is the newspaper he works for as their royal correspondent. Yes, we're going to go through some of the biggest so-called revelations in the book. But before we do, a bit about Valentine Lowe. If his name sounds familiar, it's because he was the man who first reported on the allegations of bullying against the Duchess of Sussex uh, from her time as a working royal. So in many people's minds, he has the inside scoop on the gossip, the cattiness, and the backstabbing happening downstairs in the palace. Val has had quite good contacts within the kind of palace staff for quite a long time, back, dating back to before um, Meghan and Harry actually married. Uh, I remember when I first started as a royal correspondent way back when, he had a series of quite good um, scoops on the kind of like inner palace warfare that was taking place at the time, which in a way wasn't actually so different to where we are now, because a lot of it was about plans to slim down the monarchy and which royals should be involved and which ones shouldn't and how much focus there should be on the line of succession versus the royals who sit outside of the uh, outside of the direct heirs. So he has for a long time had some had good sources on the palace side. And so what you get here, we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the Meghan and Harry perspective on things. Val's book is very much offering the other perspective. So this is a new chapter in the kind of palace perspective on what went wrong with Harry and Meghan. Yes. So let's get to it. Let's talk about some of these revelations, Jack. I actually want to start with some of them that involve Charles before we even get to Harry and Meghan, if that's okay, our new king. So (laughs) one of the earliest revelations in the book is that Charles has quite the temper. Uh, We did see some of it, of course, during the funeral ceremonies, uh, getting very, very angry at pens on two separate occasions. Um, but apparently, according to courtiers, he can go from zero to 60 in a flash and back down again. Things would frustrate him, especially the media. That's all a quote from the book. And uh, a few other things about Charles. He easily falls under people's spells. Um, He especially loves celebrities and entrepreneurs. And that can lead to real problems for individuals in his household. I'm just going to insert here, I'm not really surprised by this part. We all know the revelations about his friendship with the pedophile uh, Jimmy Savile, who was a BBC personality back in the day. 
Yeah, so Jimmy Savile is kind of like, imagine a kind of Harvey Weinstein for Britain. He was, uh, he is quite probably Britain's most prolific and notorious um, sex offender um, with hundreds and hundreds of victims. Um, when it all came out about Savile, it completely rocked British society in the same way that um, the revelations about Weinstein have in America. Um, so this all, it all comes back to that point that people sometimes make about Charles, that he's kind of a little bit in his own world. And all this stuff about him having a temper and how he relates to people it reminds me a lot of the discussion that we've had before about Michael Fawcett who is this um, this man who worked for Charles in a variety of different roles at a num- over a number of years and right now is currently at the center of this big scandal about allegations of cash for honors at his charity now what was always said about Fawcett was that Charles couldn't lose him you know he quit twice um, and Charles brought him in in you know in amid a scandal and Charles brought him back every time because Charles simply couldn't live without him because there was just some where inexplicable unexplainable way in which he just knew what Charles wanted in every given moment and could kind of placate and satisfy these sort of unreadable desires <sighs> Shall we move on to some of the revelations about Harry and Meghan? Yes. So we've got some of this, some of what's in the book, in all fairness, we have heard before in a number of other uh, outlets. So first of all, Val's actually published some of it in the Times in his own articles immediately before the Oprah Winfrey interview. So some of it might be reminiscent for people from that period, but also it touches on quite similar terrain as a book called Battle of Brothers by Robert Lacey. Um, But essentially, he talks about this uh, group of palace staff who called themselves the Sussex Survivors Club. Um, who felt that it was very difficult to work for Meghan um, and Harry, and that, you know, they said that they felt that they were played. Yeah, yeah. The Sussexes supposedly even kept their closest staff members in the dark about their planned departure from royal life. Uh, One quote from the book is that Meghan would not even tell their nanny, Lauren, where they were going until the plane, a private jet, was in the air. So this it's a really interesting part of the of Meghan and Harry's narrative. I always think when it comes to Harry and Meghan's departure that it's really important to see where things come on the timeline. So what we have is the there's a period round about October 2018 that the book deals with and then there's some of the later periods. This this thing about the the plane comes from the very end of their time within the royal family when they were going off to Canada um, and obviously yes they they obviously didn't come back that was when they quit royal life and they just did a handful of royal jobs in March 2020 so Val's book also deals with this October 2018 period which was when they had this tour of Australia and you may remember that Harry also talked about this during the Oprah Winfrey interview and he said that that tour was a big turning point in terms of Harry and Meghan's relations with the royal family Um, So he and also Oprah kind of ventured the theory that there was a bit of royal jealousy going on here, that Harry said it was the first moment that um, family members had had a chance to see how uh, great Meghan was at the job, um, and that uh, Oprah mentioned that Diana also did a tour of Australia in which um, she blew people away and Charles was famously very jealous about it. So what we have then is Harry and Meghan have offered this version where they're suggesting jealousy on the part of royal family members after seeing how fantastic she was on the tour versus palace aides now telling uh, Valentine Lowe 
that there were there was friction, there were arguments, and things behind the scenes did not match the public presentation. Yeah, uh, some of those frictions include, again, according to staffers, they said, "Oh, Megan thought she could be the next Beyonce." Uh, Megan was upset that she wasn't getting paid for her time in Australia, and and again, I just want to say, you know, this is coming from the palace staffers. None of this has actually been commented on by Harry, Meghan, anybody in Buckingham Palace. Nobody has actually commented on these allegations from the staff. And so what then follows immediately after that tour, so when Harry and Meghan got home, you then have the uh, email from Jason Knuff, uh, the Kensington Palace Press uh, Secretary, accusing (laughs) accusing (laughs) Meghan of bullying staff. And then that uh, also, that was kept private at the time. But a month later, there were then a series of stories that leaked um, the famous uh, Meghan made Kate cry story, the um, Sunday Times Duchess difficult story leading into January 2019 when Meghan told Harry for the first time that she was experiencing suicidal thoughts. Um, So this is the key point within the timeline when everything disintegrated basically. And what I still find fascinating um, even going back over what's what's been serialized from Valentine Lowe's book is that we still don't actually really have that much about what role uh, Prince William played in all of this, whether he was just out of it completely or whether he was involved in some way in some of these discussions. There's plenty of reason to think that he might be, not least because Harry talked about the decline that followed October 2018 in the context of how family members were reacting to Meghan. Also, uh, Robert Lacey in his book, Battle of Brothers, suggests that William threw Harry out of Kensington Palace So it, after this period. So there's still, even in, in Valentine Lowe's book, which obviously it's not out in full yet, but is coming out in October, there's still this big question mark around the role of actual family members beyond the palace aides themselves. You know what my big conclusion is from the excerpts I've read, Jack? I would not trust any of my staffers at all if I lived in that palace. I they, They're like running to the press, tattling on me, saying bad things about me, leaking stories. I don't know how any of them can be trusted. I, I don't know what I would do if I lived in there. Only whisper to my partner, only whisper when I talk, because I, I, I just feel like these you know, palace staff, it seems like they're just out to get everybody in the palace. It's interesting. There's definitely a feeling reading through the extract that some, certainly some of these uh, palace aides actually felt that Harry and Meghan's departure was probably an unavoidable, inevitable conclusion because of all of the ways in which uh, there was just no kind of fusing together of um, you know Megan's aspirations for her own life versus the really strict environment of the royal institution and you know probably for uh, English people going into the monarchy there's like a, a reverence and deference to this institution that Megan maybe did not inherit in the same way that British people would have it. And, you know, obviously all of us only have one shot at life on planet Earth, right? And you've got to try to get, you know, you've got to try to live the life you want to live. Um, And I think Meghan arrived in Britain 
she started she entered this institution and some of the uh, some of the people quoted in the book are talking about how suddenly all of these rules constricted everything that she wanted to do um and they felt that there was nothing that the staff themselves could have done to stop this friction from happening without royal family members actually taking control of the situation and so that is why i'm still endlessly fascinated about the actual response of the the family themselves which harry has alluded to saying that, that he felt they didn't help enough with the couple's dealings with the media but we still don't know anything except perhaps from robert lacy's book about what family members did to try to sort out this situation which was clearly disintegrating around them like you say leaks to the media stuff starting to come out there's a lot of friction it's becoming toxic what did family members do to get control of the situation and try to resolve it (sighs) To me, it really echoes everything that Diana went through when she became a member of this family. And uh, I know some people are like, oh, she was in a state of paranoia. She was not right in the head by the end of things. But I'm like, I don't know how much of that was paranoia. Some of that seems legitimately true. The aides really were tattling on her all the time. They were. There's also uh, there's an extent of paranoia that's justified as well. Like people will be paranoid in circumstances when a certain amount of the conspiracy is real like you'll your mind will always go beyond what's real but yeah like there were kensington or staff up in highgrove who were circling uh things in the tv guide to make it look like charles had been home watching television when he was actually with camilla um, (laughs) conducting an affair like if that was happening you're gonna be paranoid because you're gonna be suspecting everything and everyone yeah Well, Jack, should we move on to Katie Nichols' book, The New Royals, Queen Elizabeth's Legacy and the Future of the Crown? That sounds good. So what's your take on this thing, Kristen? Well, first of all, just want to let people know it was published on the day the Queen died. So it doesn't actually have anything about the Queen's death in it. This is a very new book. Uh, For those who don't know, Katie Nichol is Vanity Fair's royal correspondent. And full disclosure, I have appeared on her podcast, Dynasty. So I just want to say that up front and get that out of the way. And I've also appeared in a number of documentaries with her. Okay, but let's get to some of the revelations in this book. Uh, This book is not hyper-focused on... um, Meghan and Harry, the way Val's book is. But uh, it it covers all sorts of things having to do with William, with Prince Andrew, with Charles, uh, with the whole crew. And uh, one thing that jumped out right away from the excerpts I have read is that William kind of paved the way for Camilla. He was kind of, you know, uh, offering an olive branch to her uh, very early on. Uh, Camilla met William and Harry in the same year, but met William first. And with William's help, got to know Harry a few months later. And it had been William's idea to invite Camilla on their holiday yacht at one point early on. So uh, William really was trying to, you know, lay out the carpet in a way, be a peacekeeper at a very young age for the woman who was his father's mistress and would eventually become his stepmother. And it's also really interesting to see that. Uh, aspect of Camilla's 
you know, royal journey in a book so soon before Harry's comes out, because obviously Harry is going to have to deal with that whole period of his life, presumably in his own memoir. So now we have a kind of version of it that's already been laid out for us in Katie Nichols' book, um, right before we'll sit very soon probably get to know what Harry thought. And it'll be very interesting, you know, she, if she's suggesting William paved the way, what did Harry think during that process? Was he more reluctant? Did he simply follow his brother's lead? We may well know very soon. Yeah. I mean, they were so young when all of this happened, and there was so much trauma happening to them um, over and over again. The leaked stories about, you know, tampon gate, about cheating allegations, about tapped phones, and then, uh, and then their mother dying tragically. I, I can see where... It might be hard to just jump right in and be like, yay, Camilla, daddy's mistress. And, you know, maybe it does take some time to warm up to that person. I, I, I can't imagine that was easy for any of them. Another revelation in the book is that William and Harry have not always been close, even though that's usually how the press uh, portrays them. In fact, Nickel writes that the brothers suffered their first major falling out in 2001 when they were just teenagers. The boys had reportedly gone out partying, drinking, and smoking various substances. And uh, Harry was, quote, given a furious dressing down by his father, which led to him falling out with William properly for the first time because Harry resented the flack when William had also been drinking and was essentially let off the hook. So Harry really received the brunt of his father's rage in that instance. And actually, this is also really similar, again, to something that's in Robert Lacey's book, which talks about the way that Harry took all of the flack for the famous photograph in which he was dressed in a Nazi uniform at a costume party. But William had actually been there with Harry in the costume shop when the the costume had been bought. Um, so Harry felt then, too, that um, it was a kind of one-sided barrage on him, which didn't uh, direct any of the criticism to William. So it is adding to a kind of existing portfolio of their kind of early tensions as teenagers. And it must be really hard to be, you know, on paper, the junior brother in a, in a mm -hmm. partnership like that. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, everybody just calls you the spare and you know, if your own family is treating you like that as well, that must hurt a lot. I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. Jack, I want to move on to Prince Charles and Prince Andrew's fabulous relationship. And by fabulous, I mean glacial. According to Katie Nichol, uh, it has been that way ever since the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012. According to Nichol, it just got worse and worse and really peaked to the level it is now around the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012. Um, it was made worse by the fact that certain royals were not invited to stand on the balcony with Her Majesty, including Prince Andrew, as well as Princess Anne and Prince Edward. And that balcony appearance would be a turning point in Charles's relationship with his younger brother, which today remains glacial, Nicole said. Andrew just felt left out. And then it just got worse and worse from there. And uh, not only did it get worse because Andrew felt left out, then on the flip side, it got much, much, much worse when the allegations came out about his friendship with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And Charles and William 
supposedly really bonded over that. That is something that really made their relationship and trust in each other airtight because they stood on the same side of that issue. They believed very strongly that Andrew was sullying the palace. He was sullying what it meant to be a royal. And they were completely united on that front. So got really bad during that Diamond Jubilee and then just stayed that way ever since. So this is really seeming like Andrew now has no way back. I mean, we've always kind of talked, haven't we, about the fact that the Queen was probably the only person creating any kind of glimmer of light from Andrew's perspective for a return to public life. Um, We saw some kind of some positioning of him during the funeral period where he was allowed to wear military uniform. But if Nichols' book is correct, then clearly Charles is not about to bring Andrew back anytime soon, is he? No. <laughs> no, and I'm I'm happy for that. I don't think he belongs on any palace balconies or any parades. He does not. No, indeed. So this the original um, arguments, I think a lot of them were, like you say, it was about slimming down the monarchy, how many people would be on the Buckingham Palace balcony, mm-hmm. who we would get to see. And I think there were also uh, disagreements between Charles and Andrew about Andrew's children, um, Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie, whether they would get police protection, whether they would have royal careers. Andrew wanted them to, and um, Charles did not. Now, Andrew won some of those battles in the sense that he did continue his royal career for many years after that point and also you know he retained police protection but obviously Beatrice and Eugenie went to work in the private sector they did not have careers as working royals they had police protection I think up until about the end of their university lives and then once they were kind of out in the wild they lost that police protection so Charles did actually win some of those battles but we now have a situation where obviously Andrew's career was cut short by extraordinary, extraordinary allegations against him relating to Epstein. And um, obviously, you know, he is the most unpopular member of the royal family. And yeah, clearly, there is no way back for him now. Yeah. And well deserved that lack of popularity. Speaking of the slim down monarchy, one thing that Nicole writes in her book is that the real reason at this point that William is so angry at Harry, why he feels so betrayed by Harry, is with a slimmed-down monarchy getting even more slim with Harry and Meghan stepping away, he feels that he and Kate now have to do too much work, too much uh, responsibility put on the Cambridges. And the timing, he's like, oh, you know, I, I have these young kids, I'm just trying to live a nice private life. I don't want to be king yet. And now I have to do even more work because Harry and Meghan have stepped away. So uh, that slimmed down monarchy, it, it can be tough doing those thousands of royal engagements a year when suddenly several members of the family are no longer doing their job. It is a really interesting aspect of Charles's perspective and in a way says a lot about him that his concept of slimming down relates to the number of people who were working for the royal family. Um, and in a sense, he's, he's right that the public don't really know what Princess Alexandra does every year or, you know, the Duke of Gloucester or the Duke of Kent. Prince Michael but of Kent? Like, what are they doing? Prince Michael of Kent. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So, the, you know, the public don't really have any concept of what these members of the royal family do. But also, in as much as they don't, they're also not particularly troubled by the fact that they're working royals. So there's this slight contradiction in Charles's outlook, which is, you know, do the royal family want these jobs undertaken every year? Like, are these visits that the cousins of the Queen, because that's what 
the more these more minor royals are, their cousins of the queen. Um, are the jobs they're doing important? Do they need to happen? If the answer to that question is yes, then you do need somebody to do them. Um, if not, then you kind of have to junk whole swathes of the royal calendar um, because the remaining royals are otherwise going to have to pick up the work of you know about sort of four or five people. Jack, can I shift over to something that's just a little sillier and made me laugh in an excerpt I read from Katie Nichols' book? It's about the Netflix series The Crown and Prince Charles apparently having to switch off the show because he felt that there was a one-sided portrayal of Diana as victim and himself as villain. He did not like it. He does not like The Crown. This is really interesting. And I always go back to this thing, which is that like they've got to watch the Peter Sutherland speech coaching tapes to listen to the tapes that Diana gave to Andrew Morton. They are so much worse than The Crown. And actually, like, I do <laughs> yes. th- genuinely think that there is some of Charles's perspective in The Crown. The Crown like very much paints it as though he was under pressure from the older generation to uh, enter a marriage that he didn't particularly want um, and shows that he presents him as having always had, a, had his heart set on Camilla from the word go but it just simply wasn't possible and he was stopped and then you know obviously things disintegrated from there um whereas you know Diana's perspective as outlined to to her speech coach Peter Settlin was that um Charles said that he refused to be the first prince of Wales never to have a mistress and that Philip gave him permission to go back to Camilla after five years I mean there's a lot out there that is so much worse than what they put into the crown Yeah, the crown also kind of suggests that the queen wasn't always the most affectionate or loving mother and that maybe Charles was a little bit emotionally stunted. So I do think there is a little bit of sympathy for Charles in the crown. And in fact, that very point is in where they've probably almost certainly got that is actually the biography that Charles did with Jonathan Dimbleby in in 1994. Yes, Um, which is actually uh, saying more negative things about his family than the crown is, in my opinion. That yeah, he said a lot. He said, yeah, he suggested <laughs> Philip bullied him and that, you know, yes. he was, yeah, he was reduced to tears by the banter. Oh, gosh. Well, there are a lot of juicy bits and pieces in both those books. Again, the names of the books are Valentine, Lowe's Courtiers, and Katie Nichols' The New Royals. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And when we're back, King Charles is yet to announce whether or not his grandchildren on the Sussex side will be prince and princess. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. 
CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everyone. We're back. And now we shift from book titles to royal titles. As we all know, Charles is now king. Camilla has become queen consort. And William and Kate are the new prince and princess of Wales. So where does that leave Harry and Meghan's children? The George V Convention suggests they should, as grandchildren of the monarch, become Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet. Now, there's been no official update on this, and all indications so far are that the palace do not see this as a burning or pressing question that needs to have a really immediate answer. However, the public and the media see this very differently. This is the big question that people want an answer to, and what answer comes could have major implications for the way that the monarchy is perceived, particularly among the younger generation. So, Like you say, Kristen, it goes back to the George V Convention, which people may remember Meghan mentioned during her Oprah interview. It dictates that they would become prince and princess. If Charles decides to depart from that, which he does have the right to do if he wants to, there will almost certainly be an allegation that he has stripped the first mixed-race members of the royal family in living memory of titles that rightfully belong to them. Yeah, and it looks kind of suspicious from the outside because uh, while they're treating Lilibet and Archie's titles as a non-priority, they immediately, following Queen Elizabeth's death on September 8th, changed their websites. They changed what their titles were publicly. In uh, Charles's first speech, he made clear what everyone's new titles were, except for Archie and Lilibet. There, there was no announcement there, even though all other royal correspondence, websites, etc., have made clear the other titles being changed. I think they don't quite realise how big an issue this has the potential to be. So the royals have been struggling at points with their, uh, the, with the way they're viewed by the youngest generation of British people, your kind of Gen Z, um, who in some polling conducted over the last year, and particularly since Oprah, has shown young people divided on the future of monarchy and whether to keep the monarchy at all, that it was even a poll where a slim uh, percentage more people wanted to abolish the monarchy and keep it. Um, so this, because this is confined to the youngest generation, it is easy to miss this insight in the overall polling, which is still very pro-monarchy in Britain. However, one thing about young people is that give them time and they become old people. And if they retain those views, you could easily wind forward and have a situation in 30 years' time where all of a sudden the majority of people want to abolish the monarchy if they retain those views. Now, one thing about the younger generation is obviously they are very concerned with social justice and racial justice. Um, And the potential appearance that Charles might be taking some kind of retributive action against children, you know, of under the age of four, 
that is terrible, terrible, terrible positioning for the monarchy so early on in Charles's reign. Um, it's we just discussed how sometimes the the aspects of his approach to slimming down jar slightly with the public perception, and I think this is a classic example of it. The the idea that they could be stripped of their prince and princess titles to slim down the monarchy when those titles have no financial value attached to them uh, will just simply be unintelligible to the public. People will not believe that it is done in the spirit of slimming down. They will believe that it is racism. And that is what Charles would be accused of. And Katie Nichol, who we were just talking about with her royal biography, she was just saying on True Royalty TV's The Royal Beat that uh, she believes that there is a caveat here for King Charles, that the caveat is trust. And in her opinion, he is withholding these titles because there is a lack of trust. But again, I have to agree with you, Jack. Uh, what trust is there to be had with a two-year-old and a four-year-old? This isn't about them. He is having an issue with Meghan and Harry and has decided to take it out on toddlers, essentially. And also, it's, there's a, for me, only one game that's worth playing, and that's the long game. And you can try to kind of have a, it's almost like a bit of an ultimatum, isn't it? You know, if you want those titles, then you have to do a certain thing. And it's been suggested that maybe they're concerned about Harry's memoir, or they're concerned about any further criticisms that might be made in the Archetypes podcast. But... You know, there is also the possibility that Harry and Meghan will simply call their bluff. And at that point, they either have to make good on the threat or they have to pull the titles. And if they pull the titles, you know, they may do so for the transient gain of trying to dilute or water down or dumb down Harry's memoir. But in 30 years time, Archie and Lily will still be without those titles at a point when a lot of the content of Harry's book will have been forgotten anyway. So I think they really have to understand that what's important here is the long term situation. Yeah. Oh, Charles, don't be petty. Don't be petty. This is not a pen that has leaked on your hand. You don't need to get all baby about this. You know, you don't, th these are your grandkids. Come on, step up. And that's what it comes down to, isn't it? These are children. These are yeah. children and there's a rule or a convention that suggests that they should have these titles. So, you know, it's a, it's a very miserly thing to even entertain the idea, I think, of stripping them of titles that, you know, the convention suggests they should have. All right, we are going to take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. Jack is at Jack underscore Royston. I am at Kristen Meinzer. We always have our royal updates there, as well as Jack's latest stories for Newsweek, which are always terrific. He always has the inside scoop. When we're back, the royals and the press battle it out. And this time, we're not talking about the tabloids. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi everyone, we're back with one last story about the Queen, her passing and the television outlets who covered it. The question has arisen, who controls the historic record of Queen Elizabeth II's commemorations? Now, historically speaking, the press have always been able to do what they want with what they film, for the most part. After all, it's their film. But in this particular case, the palace are saying otherwise. Kristen, tell us more. So TV outlets, including the BBC, ITV and Sky News, were given until this last Monday to produce an hour-long compilation of clips they'd like to keep from their coverage of ceremonial events held for the Queen. The royal household will then consider whether or not to veto any of the clips in that compilation that each of those networks submit. All other footage will then be completely taken out of circulation, and the only way to access those hours, dozens if not hundreds of hours of footage, will be through an application process with the royal family on a case-by-case basis. So uh, just to reiterate, these outlets, which filmed all of these events on their own film with their own producers using their own equipment, won't be allowed to use any of this footage unless they have permission from now on from the royal family. I think this is extraordinary decision-making. It feels like it's kind of drafting policy as though we were still living in the 1990s, whereas actually we're living in the digital age. And people have already recorded this, like the most kind of inflammatory clips from this whole period are all over TikTok and Twitter already, stuff already over YouTube. And all of that stuff is out there. Um, And all this really does is mean that the mainstream media outlets that are likely to be more respectful in the way that they approach some of these questions are actually the ones who won't be able to examine what really happened, which means that people will then be all that much more dependent on the versions that appear on social media. So let's say, for example, somebody wants in five years, ten years time to remind everybody that there was this weird incident when Prince Andrew appeared to... um, you know, uh, glide his hand across his daughter's bottom or Prince Charles got annoyed about a pen or whatever it might be, you know, they will be in the hands of, uh, of people on TikTok and social media who might present a really even more skewed interpretation of those events. Whereas if you just let media organizations do what they want with it, then you can at least have responsible people who are potentially regulated uh, in broadcast terms by Ofcom or in press terms by Ipso. And if you don't like their presentation, the royal family can actually complain about those people. They can't complain about people on social media. 
Yeah. It just seems like a really bad attempt at turning the press into their PR agency. And the press should not be their PR agency. Frankly, the press should be a free press. And that's part of a robust democracy. And uh, it is the royal family saying, actually, we are not pro-democracy anymore. We, we only want the press to report uh, things that make us look good. What, what are they saying? They're not pro-democracy anymore. They're pro-censorship. Exactly. I think Charles needs to be really careful here because one isolated incident like this probably won't damage him very much. But what could start to become damaging for him is if there is just a steady trickle of incident after incident after incident that doesn't really present the royal family in a positive light. He might get away with it for a period of time, but if it continues unabated in the long term, then it will start to erode trust in the monarchy. And trust in the monarchy is really important, especially in a context where some royal problems are very difficult to solve. We still have the cash for honours scandal Mm -hmm. rumbling in the background. Um, Two people have been interviewed under caution there now. We don't know where that investigation is going, whether it will lead to a trial. Um, There are, you know, the issues with family members, including Prince Andrew and Harry and Meghan. There could be arguments there. Then there were, we've discussed previously on this show, some of the arrests of protesters um, who were campaigning to abolish the monarchy. Uh, They need to not be this constant steady stream of uh, of stories that all point in a certain direction, which is presenting the monarchy as dysfunctional and not suited to 21st century life. Yeah. And this certainly adds to that. I have to say, as somebody who has uh, produced a number of documentaries and appeared in a number of documentaries, uh, the deadline they were given to just come up with very specific minute-by-minute um compilations of uh, all of the ceremonies around the queen's passing it was so micromanaged and it was uh it, it was ridiculous I, i'm just going to give you some examples here um so the networks were told they can retain rights to show up to 12 minutes of footage from the hour-long westminster abbey funeral service 12 minutes from the windsor castle committal service 12 minutes of king charles the third's uh, session council and only a few minutes from each of the various other vigils that took place so this is micromanaging what they are allowed to ever show again and giving them a short deadline to do it and this is out of 10 days of morning coverage, which the firm wanted. They wanted the wall-to-wall coverage. And then they put all of these outlets on a very regimented schedule of what they can use. Uh, And I just have to say, as someone who's worked in production, this is too much work. It's too demanding. And it essentially is saying to the press, uh, we don't take your work seriously. We really only want to take our reputation seriously. Yeah, indeed. It's a it's an unnecessary battle. And it's, you know, do you really want to put the media's noses out of joints so early in Charles's reign? Um, it's a it's not a good way to begin a, a reign in a really delicate situation where it's been 70 years since the last time we had a new head of state. There are, you know, Charles has got to get through the crown season five, which is coming up. You know, we've, been, <laughs> we've just been talking about how difficult season four was for him. Well, it's about to get worse. Um, it's not it's not a good look. They need to be making friends, which actually, you know, Charles and the media, there have been times where he has really tried to reach out to you know specific people or media organizations and be you know have more of a relationship than some other members of the firm but this is not a good way to start a reign i don't think no not at all 
All right, everyone. That's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.